The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Thanks for joining me this morning. Coming up in this hour, we have three guests. Have you ever found yourself trying to maintain a positive re- personal or professional relationship when all the effort is flowing one way? I know I have. At some point, most people are going to find themselves in a relationship with a narcissist. So we're going to talk to psychologist Dr. Alan Caviola about his new book, The One-Way Relationship Workbook, that addresses this problem. Next, Margaret Heffernan, author and former BBC Radio TV producer, will discuss her new book, Willful Blindness, Why We Ignore the Obvious at Our Peril. Also coming up is associate editor at Men's Health, the world's largest men's lifestyle magazine, Clint Carter to announce the publication of Eat This, Not That, a nutrition and weight loss plan that allows you to eat at Burger King, McDonald's, Dunkin' Donuts, and the Olive Garden and still strip away 10, 20, or even 30 pounds. Well, we'll see about that. But right now, thanks for joining us, Dr. Caviola. Um, Your book, The One-Way Relationship Book, Step-by-Step, Help for Coping with Narcissists, Egotistical Lovers, Toxic Coworkers, and Others Who Are Incredibly self-absorbed. We're going to discuss that, but it sounds like you're describing at least 90% of the people in the USA. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There are quite a few people that uh, really, you know, demonstrate these kinds of uh, traits, narcissistic traits. They're highly self-centered, very egocentric, and and we see them at all walks of life. I mean, they could be in the workplace. uh, We can be in a love relationship with these folks, or, or they could be family members. They could be sons or daughters, you know, aunts or uncles, things, you know, it could be an, just about anybody, right? Okay, right. so they're amongst us, they're here, we may even be one of them. Yes. But first, let's describe <laughs> what is a narcissist. <clears throat> I know there are narcissistic personality disorders, and then there's those of us who may be described as narcissists, and I think there's a difference, isn't there? Right, definitely. And, and we kind of look at that on a somewhat of a continuum, for example. Um, on one end of this continuum, you have somebody with really, well, who's, who has good self-esteem, for example, and that's something we see as a positive trait. But then when you kind of move towards narcissism or narcissistic personality disorder, now what you're seeing are, are an exaggeration of those traits. So, for example, as opposed to a person just being self-confident, which we see as uh, something positive, now we, now we see with narcissism where the person um, really becomes grandiose or they become really preoccupied with these fantasies of, of power and brilliance, or sometimes they'll even have a sense of entitlement where they feel that the rules don't apply to them. And as a matter of fact, that's why we even see in certain professions where people, narcissists, become attracted to certain professions because of that sense of power, that sense of entitlement that they feel. 
So, Would that be politicians? Oh, definitely. Definitely, Catherine. We see this so often with politicians. And what you'll pick up on when you listen to a politician, when they're maybe called on the carpet for something or called to task on something, they'll never admit that they're wrong. They'll never take responsibility for it. They'll dance around it instead of saying, you know, yeah, I shouldn't have done this this way or whatever. And that's where you get that sense of entitlement. Uh, where the person will say, well, I'm, you know, I'm a senator, I'm a president, so therefore I'm entitled uh, to do these kinds of things. Now so imagine that now in a personal relationship, you know, in being in a personal relationship with somebody like that, and, and it also really tends to wreak havoc, naturally. So it's important for us to be aware, first of all, of what a narcissist is and how right. that person, he or she, demonstrates the characteristics of the behaviors. Right. It's going to affect us, you're saying, in your book, at work, at home, in our personal relationships, and mm-hmm. and there are a lot of challenges. So, um, so how I mean, you do this specifically in the book. How do we identify a narcissist? Let's how, just in general. How do I mean? Mm-hmm. You have several points. Wow. Right, right. Yeah. You know, naturally, in the book, we have a number of different checklists and things like that that really help people to identify both, you know, some of the characteristics of the person that they're concerned about or that they're having difficulty with, and then also looking at their reactions to this person as well. Because one of the things with narcissists is that they really have a knack for making others feel inferior or kind of lesser than or demeaned. And and they're really adept at that. Uh, narcissists are really uh, skilled at that, kind of putting others in a one-down uh, position. But just generally, I, I mean, if... A person feels like there's really no give and take in a relationship. There's no, like, what we call, like, reciprocity. In other words, where it's like everything seems to be flowing in one way. Like, gee, I'm always doing for this person. Or, gee, it's always about them. Or, it's always about what they're feeling, you know. It's never about what, what I'm feeling or what's going on with me. I mean, those are really the hints that, well, maybe, maybe this person is uh, narcissistic. And, and well, since you can't change, yeah. as I understand it, from a social work perspective, uh-huh. right. it, you can't change a narcissist. I mean, that behavior is very difficult to change. So let's say you're married to one, uh-huh. because that's really probably the most toxic situation. You've, you, you've made a commitment, and here you are married to someone. Maybe you even have children, and you find, well, you think, my husband is a narcissist, and it, mm-hmm. because of all the, same, the behaviors you described. So what can you do? Right, exactly. Because, uh, uh, Catherine, that's, uh, that's really the first step is to be able to accept that I can't change this person. Because, right, these traits a lot of times are so ingrained. Right, I mean, these, these some, sometimes have existed for years and years. So that idea that we're going to be able to change them. And as you know, even in therapy, I mean, even when a person, like, like say a narcissist, for example, makes a commitment to counseling or therapy, even in counseling and therapy, it's a very hard road to be able to try to change some of these uh, traits or to be able to get the person to look at alternatives and such. So we start from the premise that, right, you can't change this person. So then step two is, how, how are you going to be able to cope with this? And some of the things that we suggest in the book, for example, are ways to communicate with the narcissist so that this way you're heard. Um, and it goes beyond assertiveness. I mean, you know, we had tons of stuff written on assertiveness training and that sort of thing. But what we talk about are ways to be able to communicate to, to get specific points across to the person. Uh, we also talk about setting boundaries as well because 
a narcissist will just, you know, kind of run over a person in terms of do this, do that. Uh, it's my way or the highway, uh, that type of an approach. So just even the idea of being able to set, uh, set boundaries becomes very important as well. And we, we talk about a number of different exercises that people can do in the workbook that will help them to set boundaries. Can you give us, Dr. Caviola, I, a specific, a case history maybe even of an example of this in a relationship where mm-hmm. you have, um, let's say, a spouse mm-hmm. who is a narcissist. Give us a typical kind of situation that you come up with as a psychologist, or that you're confronted with as a psychologist. Right, yes, because we, you know, naturally both, uh, Dr. Lavender and I see, see many people in our, our private practice who, um, you know, who are married to narcissists, for example. So maybe a typical case would be somebody, say, for example, a woman who's married to a narcissist, somebody that I've seen for a while, who will constantly mention how um, her husband will constantly demean her, criticize her, put her down, uh, to the point now where, you know, she had begun to buy into his definition of what she should be and how she should be and that sort of thing. So what she's begun to take a look at as, and has begun to take steps to do is to set boundaries in terms of the criticisms, like you're, you're being verbally abusive, so she's labeling it, um, and then also now has begun to do things that help to support her sense of self. In other words, that will, things that will support her sense of self-esteem. And this is a very talented woman. I mean, she, she has an advanced degree, for example, and, uh, and it, everything has always been around the husband. It's always revolved around him, around his family, around what he wants. So what she had to do, basically, is to begin, as I said before, to set some boundaries on this behavior, to be able to say no no, I'm not doing this, I have class tonight, or no, I have a meeting to go to. Um, and and uh, what she has really been effective. Now, initially, what the narcissist will do is they'll redouble their efforts. So, in other words, if they feel that they're losing control, uh, then they'll, they'll kind of, you know, go into overdrive. So uh, that's where sometimes counseling becomes very important, or even self-help groups become important in terms of supporting the change that's going on. Don't narcissists often, when they are confronted, or even if they're not confronted, but if someone questions what they're doing, mm-hmm. they feel their whole person feels thwarted, so they get really angry. It's very difficult for them to deal with the issue at hand. Like you might say, well, you know, you're, uh, you, you, you come home late, dinner was cold, well, you know, mm-hmm. can't you call me and tell me what time dinner is ready? And they feel like, whoa, you're just going, you've, you've, you've just decimated my whole personality. And so their reaction is so... Mm-hmm. Uh, overblown. Um, isn't that one of the common reactions to narcissistic behavior? Yes, Catherine, exactly. That's, that's definitely what happens is, is that um, anything that they perceive as a criticism, for example, uh, puts them into a highly defensive mode. That's why it's, it's not unusual. I mean, uh, you've probably worked with batterers. Uh, I've worked with uh, batterers, uh, people who are physically abusive, and that's generally what happens even with battering, uh, that anything, anything that they perceive as a criticism, they become so highly sensitized to it, and sometimes that's when they strike out, for example. So that's where it's more of in terms of uh, the chapter that we did on communicating with the narcissist, it's not so much you did this or you're doing that. It's more of the person stating, 
um, I'm doing this. This is what I want to do. Uh, there's nothing that where it's attacking of their behavior or confronting it, right? Because they they become highly defensive, and and you get different variations of that too. They can become emotionally abusive, physically abusive sometimes, naturally. So we yeah. we really try to get the person really to say you have to take care of yourself because you're not going to change this person, and that's where sometimes people do take the approach that you did this or you're being selfish or whatever. And, and sometimes that comes out of this desire to want to change them. And as we were talking about before, that just doesn't happen. Don't you think we live in a narcissistic society? You know, in the beginning I said maybe 90% of us have some form of this kind of narcissistic behavior. But we yeah. live in this, I think, narcissistic society where our society encourage, almost encourages this behavior. I mean, with, you know, reality TV. Get right. out there. Be on television. Yeah. Anybody wants to be on television or be in the movies or be in film or be mm-hmm. recognized. Um, so it's, it's kind of, um, I think as a culture. We... It is. It, it definitely is, Catherine. And, and if you look at the fact that, right, we're a very individualistic uh, type of culture or society. In other words, we promote individual achievement. Or you have other cultures that really place an emphasis on on the achievement of the group or or even the family, perhaps. But uh, but it's more kind of like it's 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 a perspective of the collective as opposed to the individual. And you're right. I mean, when you look at like reality shows or or you look at the fact that uh, you know uh, uh, so there's so much of an emphasis on you know if you do anything. You know, you're, you should get, you know, some kind of accolade. I see this a lot with students, too, where, you know, they, they feel that anything that they produce should gain recognition, and it's like, no, there are standards in terms of, you know, what constitutes a, a paper that's an A or something like that, but there, that's where you get this sense of entitlement, like, oh, well, I showed up for class, so therefore I should get an A, and it's like, yeah. no, you have to produce, you know, you really have yeah, to. Yeah, and you know, well. Doctor, that starts when they're very young, I mean, in elementary yeah. school, you know, everybody wins, well, everybody right. doesn't win, you know, all the teams win, nobody's a winner, uh, everybody right. gets a gold star, that kind right. of stuff, or whatever they get today i don't know <laughs> right so, exactly <laughs> um you know but i guess that brings me to the next question is like do narcissists breed narcissists and what do we do is there anything that we can do to prevent it either individually yeah. or as a society i mean that's a big question let's just take individually as parents mm-hmm. right yeah because i and that is true Catherine. that it, it would be more likely that a narcissistic parent would perhaps breed a, a narcissistic uh, son or daughter, for example, you know, because a lot goes on, as you know, with role modeling, for example. So if this is a parent that's saying, you know, I'm, I'm the center of the universe, um, then a lot of times that will be communicated to a child. Or the other thing that we see quite a bit, I mean, you, you know, you hear, hear, hear the term the stage mother, for example, you know, who, who kind of, you know, projects onto her child that what she didn't uh, achieve. And the, and the um, I guess the equivalent for men would be like the coach father. Like, I'm going to make sure that my son is the captain of the basketball team or the captain of the football team. And, and now, you know, this parent is carting this kid around to games all weekend, for example. So it's communicating to the child, you are the center of the universe. So that really does become a breeding ground for, uh, for narcissism. You're right. So your book is a, a really a very important piece. I mean, it's, it's to, 
you know, you talk about in the book recognizing that someone you're with, either someone at work or at home, is a narcissist. But mm-hmm. do you think the narcissist would ever pick up your book and say, hey, I see myself in yeah, this, this and maybe be. I need to do something? Uh, you know, I, I wish that were the case, but uh, <laughs> unfortunately not. One of the unfortunate... I guess symptoms or byproducts of narcissism is a lack of insight. And, and it's just, we see this so often where other people can pick up on the narcissism. For example, the person themselves can't see it themselves. A good example from television, the, the series, the, the office, for example, Michael Scott, um, you know, is, is played by Steve Carell. It's a, it's a classic narcissist. And, and you just see where it's like no matter how many instances happen where he either he offends people or he makes offensive remarks or, or he's inappropriate, he doesn't see it. Other, you know, the people in the office will see it, you know, and you'll see them rolling their eyes and, and things like that. But unfortunately, the narcissists themselves really don't see it. Sometimes they will, Catherine, if there's a, they hit some kind of a bottom. And what I mean by that, it's like maybe where the, the you know there's a breakup in a relationship, they get fired from a job. In an some, extreme situation, yeah. um, you know, we have to say goodbye. This is oh, okay. Stuff. Thank I you. do hope the narcissists do pick up your book. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> or if not, at <laughs> I'll least mention the name of it again. Right, the One Way right. Relationship Workbook. Uh, it is co-authored, actually. It's Dr. Alan Caviola and uh, Neil Lavender, Ph.D. Uh, do we have a website we can go to for more information? Uh, yes, uh, newharbinger.com, that's the publisher, and uh, it's one word, and uh, that'll give a description of the book and ways to order it. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for joining me this morning. Oh, thank you, Catherine. Coming up next is our author, a former BBC radio and television personality, Margaret Heffernan, author of Willful Blindness. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do you need directions to solve financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support. Surprise you. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. 
We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. My next guest is Margaret Heffernan. She's author of Willful Blindness, Why We Ignore the Obvious at Our Peril. She's a former BBC radio and television personality, also teaches at Simmons College here in Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome to the show, Margaret. Thanks so much for being on this morning. Well, thanks a lot for having me. It was a, it's a pleasure and very fascinating to hear your last guest, too. Thank you. Well, congratulations on your new book. Thanks. Um, yeah. Now, it's really interesting. I mean, your book covers everything, personal relationships, corporate relationships, BP oil refinery disaster, the subprime mortgage lending disaster, the war in Afghanistan. Uh, <laughs> All of these things that I guess we purposefully or willfully didn't see coming? Well, I think, you know, we willfully ignored lots and lots of warning signs. You know, if you take something like um, BP, you know, when I went through all the research that had been done into the Texas City explosion in 2005, you know, there had been warnings for years that this was a very dangerous site. There were interviews with employees saying that when they drove into work each morning, they wondered if that was the day they were going to die. And yet, you know, no one really took steps to change the safety culture within the organization. You know, by the same cult, by the same token, and I'd spoken to many marriage guidance uh, counselors who, you know, are dealing with couples where one party has been um, unfaithful. And part of the pain that the betrayed spouse feels is recognizing that there were sometimes years of clues that they simply failed to pick up on. So as well as the pain of betrayal, they're looking back and saying to themselves, oh, my goodness, how could I have been so blind? And one of the arguments in my book is that, you know, these are kind of the same processes, that there are reasons why we won't look at this kind of information. And... The danger is that in in not looking at it, we feel safer, but of course it leaves us in greater danger. So, Margaret, in both of these examples you're talking about in business and in the personal relationship as yeah. well, a spouse having an affair and the other spouse not paying attention to it. But what makes us prefer ignorance? What are we so afraid of in both of those situations? Well, obviously we're afraid that the situation's really bad. You know, we wouldn't kind of studiously ignore it if we didn't know there was something uncomfortable there. So another analogy is, you know, when you don't open your credit card bill, you know, you're not failing to open it because you think it's going to be tiny. (laughs) You're failing (laughs) to open it because you're afraid it's going to be huge. And you're doing that because all of these pieces of uncomfortable information, you know, they threaten our sense of security. They may threaten our sense of self-esteem. You know, they they make us worried that the fundamental underpinning of our life is quite fragile. But of course, another example of that is, and I I said another example, and I have a friend who's going through it. Uh, sometimes we fail to go to the doctor because we're afraid of what the diagnosis is going to be. I mean, Absolutely. I have a friend so, now. You know, again, lots of people who won't go and, and get will a not scan do anything or about it. Sorry, I said. I, did you hear the whole first part? I said one example of that is not going to the doctor when you right. have certain symptoms because you are afraid right. that you know you're going to be told something that you don't want to hear, something that's too scary, so you don't yeah. go. 
Well, exactly. And, of course, the, the, the problem with this behavior, which is very, very common, is that actually it leaves time and space for the problem to get worse. You know, we ignore it because we hope that will make it go away, but actually when we ignore it, it usually tends to make it get bigger. Do you think we can apply this to, well, I was just thinking about what's happening in Japan and the disaster and the nuclear yeah. uh, power plant blowing up and... Um, you know, now in America we're saying, well, we need to do something about the West Coast because we have nuclear reactors on the coast, but we don't yeah. do anything about it. It seems to me we don't do anything about it. Uh, is that part of this willful blindness? Well, I suspect it is. I would certainly say, you know, clearly the people who cited the nuclear power plants in Japan, you know, they were taking a very calculated risk and the calculations turned out to be wrong. It would absolutely be willful blindness if, in the light of that tragedy, we did not re-examine the geological foundations of our existing nuclear power plants. I mean, that would be that would be insane willful blindness, because clearly what we've learned is that the standard calculations don't quite work the way we thought they did. So you know that's new information. It would be willful info- it would be willful blindness not to apply that information. And I would argue it may be willful blindness too, really, for years to have talked about uh, an energy policy, but actually for years to have done nothing truly productive in terms of creating an energy policy that is safe for the planet long term. I think we've done that in regard to our infrastructure. I mean, we keep talking about yeah. we need to do something. We need to do something. Are we waiting for, uh, you know, another bridge to collapse? Uh, right. What are we waiting for? I mean, it seems to me the obvious. Our infrastructure needs to be uh, improved. Uh, it needs to be, but we're not doing anything about it. And, and it just seems to me it's, it's, you know, we're ignoring the obvious at our peril, as you say in your book. Will Absolutely. And, of course, you know, the kind of standard image for this is the ostrich putting its head in the sand, you know. And the ostrich, uh, it turns out the ostrich doesn't actually bury its head in the sand, which would obviously be, you know, a completely um, painful thing to do. But what they do is they, when they feel threatened, they lay their head down really flat on the ground. And they imagine that they've become invisible. (laughs) Um, But, of course, first of all, they're not invisible. And secondly, they've put themselves in a position where if if the danger is realized, it's even harder to run away. So, in a way, you know, the ostrich is the perfect symbol because it's doing things that make it feel safer but actually leave it at greater risk. And I think, you know, there's so many areas in our private lives and our social lives and our political and our business lives where we do this that, um, you know, I just thought we need to kind of understand how this works so we can identify it when it's happening and take steps to rectify it. Well, okay, so we identify it. And I think you've acknowledged, you acknowledge in the book that some people see more than others for, for, for whatever reason. Yeah. Who are those people, and how are they able to do it and also make changes when they're necessary? Yeah. Well, it's a great question because, um, you know, there's, there's an assumption out there that these people must either be, you know, there's an assumption that they're mostly female, which turns out not to be true. There's an assumption they must be super intelligent, uh, and there's absolutely no evidence for that. 
There's no evidence of their particular age or background. They're not especially well-connected. And in some ways, you know, what's really heartening about that is that they're very ordinary. So if they can do it, we can do it. So that's kind of the good news. The thing it's, a, that I say, it's an emotional uh, intelligence, not necessarily an academic Correct. intelligence. So they definitely have emotional intelligence. They tend to be quite detail-oriented, so they are prepared to do the work and check their instincts, you know, see if there is a little voice at the back of their heads, you know, is really accurate. So they are definitely prepared to do the work. They do listen to the little voice in the back of their minds, you know, and take that very seriously. And perhaps most importantly of all, I think they're optimists. They do believe that if they articulate what they see, they have the capacity to change it. And, of course, this becomes incredibly self-confirming because if you believe you have the capacity to change it, you have a lot more capacity than if you believe you don't. So, you know, one of the great things that Sharon Watkins said to me, you know, Sharon was the, the Enron executive who tried so hard at the end of the day to get attention for Enron's financial riskiness. She said, you know, when she talked to lots of people who'd done what she did, she couldn't really find anything meaningful that they haven't had in common except one thing, which I thought was so fascinating. She said, we all grew up in small towns where the population was under 10,000 people. And what that meant is that when you saw something wrong, you felt you had to fix it and you could fix it. That they were small enough communities that no way would someone just walk on by. She said when you grow up with that kind, in that kind of environment, it makes you feel if there's something wrong, I have to do something about it. So they have a very strong sense of social engagement. Does that mean, Margaret, that one, if it, they, it's, this occurred in, t- in towns you're saying that have less than 10,000 people, maybe the problem becomes more visible because it's a smaller town rather than right. 10 million people. It has 10,000 people. And that nobody else, maybe there's, a, there's this piece that, well, there's nobody else that's going to do anything about it. We're the only people who can do, do it. I right. think sometimes when you live in these big cities, it's sort of like, well, it's a problem, but somebody else will take care of it. That's right. They will deal with it, whoever they is. And, you know, this corresponds very neatly to um, research that was done in the 60s by a fantastic psychologist named John Darley who wrote about, you know, what he called bystander theory, where in a whole series of just incredible experiments, he proved that the more people who witness an accident or a crime, the less likely it is that any one of them will intervene. So if you're sitting in a smoke in a room that's filling with smoke and you're on your own, you will definitely go and get help. But if you're sitting in a room with five people and nobody's doing anything, the chances are you won't do anything either. Yeah, I, I, We're going to take a break, but I, I've been personally in those kinds of situations where I've seen something happen on a busy, busy street, and there are so many people, I sometimes make the observation, well, somebody's going to call 911. Should I call? Should, you know, right. 20 people, 20, 50 people be calling and, and maybe won't do something because my expectation is somebody else is going to do something about it. Anyway, fascinating topic. We're talking to Margaret Heffernan, author of Willful Blindness, 
why we ignore the obvious at our peril. We have a lot more to talk about with her, so don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. I'm Catherine Zox. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And I'm talking to Margaret Heffernan. She's author of Willful Blindness, Why We Ignore the Obvious at Our Peril. She's a former BBC radio and television personality. She writes for the Huffington Post, among many other things, and is also a professor. Uh, Margaret, I kind of want to change, I guess, gears a little bit, because we've been talking, well, we, I don't know if I'm changing them, but we're talking about personal responsibility and doing something and, and not right. being willfully blind and, and inactive when we see a problem or we see something that needs to be done. Um, you know, next month, actually, it is April, is uh, National Child Abuse Prevention Month, and I'm a social mm-hmm. worker, so I'm very interested in this. One in, one, I guess, one in four girls in the United States and one in six boys are sexually abused by the time right. they're 18. And very often, parents, particularly mothers, turn a blind eye to this because right. they don't want to see it. They don't want to deal with it. It's a major problem. Uh, you know, just uh, having given you some of those statistics. And I know that you have this a chapter in the book where you do address this issue. Right. So um, can you... Yeah, I, and I dealt with it because, um, you know, everyone pays so much attention to stranger danger and all this sort of stuff. But, you know, the truth is that the, the vast majority of child abuse happens within families. And it made me think, my goodness, how could that be going on in your own family and you not notice? Now, how could that possibly be? And I talked to a number of people who work um, both with parents and children who've been involved in child abuse. And, um, 
You know, it, it, it is a classic pattern of willful blindness where when the child abuse eventually is uncovered, um, the, the, the parent who discovers it looks back and sees all of these clues and thinks, oh, my goodness, how could I not have, not have seen this? And there are several forces at work that explain it. One is very often, if it's a, if it's a father who is the abuser, the wife may be very, or the mother may be very dependent on that man and it feel in a very um, submissive relationship. So they feel they don't have the power and they may lack the confidence in their own judgment. They may be financially dependent and therefore very reluctant to disturb the status quo. They may sometimes be rather relieved that the husband is paying attention not to them but to someone else, so it takes the pressure off of them. Um, Or they may simply feel that if they were to allow themselves to contemplate what could be happening, it would destroy the entire family. And therefore... It's just, it's too risky even to have the thought. Um, I also interviewed um, a, a gentleman in Ireland, Colm Gorman, who was himself abused um, by a priest in the Catholic Church. And he really kept this kind of from himself and definitely from his parents for decades. Again, because he really felt if this information is allowed to surface, it will destroy everybody. Of course, the truth is that when, that when finally everyone's able to confront reality, that's the only moment at which repair can begin. And until that reality is dealt with, you know, all of these families lead really desperate lives. In reality, though, I, I think, Margaret, the truth is that once it, the person themselves confronted, or in the case of the of abusing a child and, and the mother feeling for all those reasons that you mm. mentioned that she can't confront it. It does change everything. It does, it change, does it. change everything. That's right. I mean, the fear that it will change everything is completely justified. But the danger is that by not confronting it, it's allowed to persist for so much longer. And well, then the, the parent has, on top of everything else, this terrible guilt of having known kind of unconsciously what was happening and done nothing about it. So, you know, so there are layers and layers of repair that have to take place before any kind of you know, semblance of good family life can be restored. So what do you suggest in terms of, of, of prevention? Uh, you know, I'm a social worker. I see people in these kinds of situations, and I have in the past. How do we prevent this? I mean, when you have this in many cases it is, and I think statistically it bears out, it's often women who are married to men who are Correct. involved in particularly sexual abuse with their children. Yeah. Um, so what are some of the preventative measures we can do so that they don't engage in this willful blindness? Yeah, well, I think there are a couple of things. I think, first of all, it's very important, um, as you say, it is usually the mothers, for the mothers to build the mother's confidence, confidence in her own ability to deal with it, confidence in her ability financially to support the family if everything falls apart, to kind of provide as much kind of social, emotional, financial underpinning as humanly possible. 
Um, and then, you know, very important to have some very difficult, very delicate conversations to surface, you know, whether the doubt, you know, what is the evidence um, which uh, is provoking the, the doubt? What is the evidence that's provoking the worry? And, you know, creating a safe space in which the woman can think about it, can have a conversation with a safe person about it, and try to figure out whether the fears are reasonable or unreasonable. So we're really I think, giving you know, one of the questions that really crops up in situations of willful blindness is, if what I fear were true, what would I expect to see? And if you then, you know, you think, okay, I'd expect to see the following things, and you don't see any of them, well, then maybe you're wrong. So that's a good test. On the other hand, if you start seeing all the kind of evidence you might expect, then you're really telling yourself, now I have to do something about it. So is there anything in this particular case um, that, 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 for instance, school systems can do? I mean, are there any things, you know, we're talking about? Um, yeah, I mean, schools, I think, you know, the thing that school systems can most do is provide a safe place for the children involved and a place where they can build their confidence, a place where they feel it's safe to talk to teachers. Um you know, it's very hard for schools to intervene in families, but schools, time and again, are a kind of alternative home for children in these very difficult predicaments. And if there is one safe place for a child, that's a tremendous resource for them. Um, you know, so I think it's very important for schools to understand that they may not be able to do everything, but offering a safe place that is not abusive and which can build confidence is an absolutely vital resource as a way of, you know, giving the child the stamina and the self-confidence they need to, to protect themselves. And very, very important to create a place where this, the child feels it's safe to tell the truth. Because what happens with these children is they start to feel that, you know, what they Experience is so at odds with what everyone else, the way everyone else behaves, they start to feel slightly crazy. And so, and this is also true, for example, of the children of alcoholics. And so it becomes very, very important that children have a place where they can tell the truth as they see it and understand that they're not crazy. I think this also applies to the whole issue of bullying, which seems to be correct today as well. Yes. And bullying is a classic example of willful blindness because, especially in schools, almost everybody knows it's going on. But what some of the experts that I interviewed in my book said is that many, many teachers think that they shouldn't intervene because, well, the kids just have to learn how to sort it out. The problem with that attitude is it sends a message to the bully that the behavior is okay. And it sends the message to the kids not to intervene. And what's really fascinating is that across the United States, there are all sorts of fantastic programs being put in place, teaching children how to intervene. You know, that you don't, A, don't intervene alone, but B, that simply a few questions, like, are we really comfortable with this? Or why are you picking on John? The smallest thing 
can change the dynamic. Yeah, I think that's an important point. The simplest in, in, intervention, it doesn't have to be complex. We have to say goodbye. This is uh, fascinating. Your book is, is um, fascinating as well, Willful Blindness, Why We Ignore the Obvious at Our Peril. Margaret Heffernan. Margaret, is there a website that we can go to that we can direct listeners to? Absolutely, and it has some book extracts posted on it, and that's just www.mheffernan, or one word, dot com. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. Yeah, you've got a great book. I'm Catherine Zock. Don't go away because we have our next guest coming up, Clint Carter, uh, here to announce the publication of the uh, Eat This, Not That, The No Diet Diet. It's the first complete meal-by-meal weight loss plan in the New York Times best-selling series. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And uh, we're here to talk to my guest, Clint Carter, who is an associate editor at Men's Health, which is uh, the world's largest men's lifestyle magazine. Uh, he, he's here to introduce a new, a new publication, Eat This, Not That, The No Diet Diet. It's the first complete meal-by-meal weight loss plan in the New York Times best-selling series. Welcome to the show, Clint. Nice to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. I have to say I'm somewhat of a... I don't want to be because it sounds great. I mean, you can eat all this stuff. You can eat it at places I thought you shouldn't be eating at and still being able to lose weight. Um, so tell what is this Eat This, Not That uh, publication? What is it? Well, the, the basic idea is, you know, we've had a lot of success with our Eat This, Not That books in the past. So this takes the idea of making these really, really basic, simple, and smart swaps at, you know, every restaurant that Americans are eating at every day 
but turning it into a meal by meal plan. So we've got breakfast, lunch, and dinner, um, you know, all lined out. And, you know, to, to your point that maybe you think you shouldn't be um, eating at these places all the time, uh, you know, studies, uh, there was a study a couple of years ago that, j- that showed that people who eat out at fast food restaurants um, t- just two times a week tend to carry about 10 more pounds of body weight. Um, and so that's a, that's a real issue. But the problem is a lot of us just can't stop going to these places because we're busy and because they're convenient. So the idea right. is that we, we sort of get around that, you know, we just go in there and order blindly and we show you exactly what you should order. You're going to eat for convenience? Okay, fine. Well, here's how you do it. Right, and, so you're um, saying it's okay to eat at Burger King, McDonald's, Dunkin' Donuts, the Olive Garden, because it's not so much that you're eating there. That's okay. We understand you're busy. You have to do that. But there's a certain way if you eat there and you follow the no, the, uh, no diet diet or eat this, not that, um, you can still lose weight, 10, 20, 30 pounds by eating at these places. Well, absolutely. You know, and, and quite honestly, Burger King or McDonald's doesn't have to be, uh, you know, in, in terms of calories, in terms test. of how much weight you're going to gain, you can just as easily gain weight at Subway. There was, a, there was another study done that, that sort of looked at the number of calories people are eating at Subway versus McDonald's. And because Subway has such a good reputation, people wind up eating more food when they go in there because they have this, what nutritionists call the health halo. They think they can do no harm. So they go into Subway. They're like, okay, well, this is a healthy restaurant. Now I'm going to get a foot-long meatball marinara sandwich. Well, there you go. You've just got almost 1,200 calories in your diet. Um, but at all these places, you know, whether you're at McDonald's, whether you're at Burger King, whether you're at Subway, there are smart choices on the menu too. And um, simply knowing what those are will save you four or 500 calories at every meal. All right, so let's be specific. Because you are specific when you talk about, let's take McDonald's. What would you choose at McDonald's that's going to be healthy and it's not, you're not going to gain weight and you're not going to consume a lot of calories? Okay, so you go into McDonald's, um, an easy thing to order there. Right now they're promoting it, and, you know, we all like to think that we're sort of impervious to these uh, promotional ads, but we see the Angus Deluxe. We've heard about it. Angus just sounds like high-quality beef. Um, But if you order that burger, you're looking at 750 calories. You add fries onto that, you're at about 1,200 calories, and, you know, that's your lunch, and that's why people are putting on weight. So So what we recommend you order when you go to McDonald's for lunch is a McDouble burger. You still get to have a burger. It's got two patties on there. Um, they're smaller patties, though. It's more. It's more moderately sized burger, and it's only 390 calories. So right there, just uh, you know, just burger to burger, you're say you're cutting your calories about in half. And then instead of fries, you get a you get one of their parfaits on the side. You get a 550 calorie lunch. You get lots of protein. You get a little shot of fiber there. You get calcium, which is great for burning fat. And um, you, you wind up with a really healthy lunch, and um, you didn't have to go any, any out of your way to get it. And you didn't have to make it yourself. <laughs> and you didn't have to make it yourself, exactly. So, but, and can you get have a salad without any dressing? Would that be, you know, in addition to, let's say, that four three fifty calorie lunch? Well, you can, you can have a salad, but, I mean, to be honest, the reason we don't get into a lot of salads at fast food restaurants is because most fast food restaurants are just making these, you know, really terrible iceberg lettuce and a few shards of carrot salad. Um, you know, more power to you if that's all you need for lunch, but I think for the other 99% of us, uh, we're not, we're not going to be satisfied. And a lot of times we're not going to get, uh, you know, a lot of protein there. So 
while it might uh, help us uh, just get to that meal, we're going to be more hungry when we get to dinner, and we're going to wind up consuming more calories there. And ultimately, there's a, there's a calorie range that you want all of your meals to fall into. And so if what you're doing at lunch is just setting you up to eat more calories at dinner, um, you, could, you could also be running into problems that way. Yeah, okay, so you're talking about like a there's a calorie, what did you call it? There's like a certain calorie thing you should be eating. There's sort of a calorie range, you know, and it's not, I mean, I I hesitate to put one really hard number on it for the fact that all of us are living different lifestyles and all of us, uh, you know, men need more calories than women. Um, You know, desk workers need fewer calories than construction workers. Um, Older people need more calories than younger people. What's that? Older people need less calories than younger people. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, completely. And, and, so there's so many factors there, but ultimately we set it up to where we want, we want your biggest meal a day to be your first meal a day. That's when you should get the most calories because then you have all day to burn it off. Plus, the calories that you eat earlier in the day, the earlier in the day that you're eating, the more those calories are going to affect your appetite later in the day. So if you're eating, you know, skipping breakfast uh, you, and then eating just a medium-sized lunch, you're going to pro- I mean it's not it's not unlikely that you're going to be eating a 1500 calorie uh dinner so you add that on to the snacks you've had that day and everything and you wind up uh being way over on your your calorie limit for the day but Clint don't you think that Americans at least this is my observation maybe this is mm-hmm. what I do too although I am trying to change it uh we tend to have do just the opposite we eat the huge meal at dinner and we either skip breakfast and have a medium sized lunch so we have to change the whole thing around we do, we really do, and that's important. But here's the thing with um, with the no diet diet, we've we've made it as it, we've tried to set it up to where you're never really hungry, so you're not going to be starving for that massive dinner. And here's why: we start you off with a big breakfast, then you have a snack before you get to lunch. So by the time you get to lunch, you're not starving. You're just you're just ready for a good medium sized lunch, and that's what you get. You have a, you have a lunch. Then you have another snack later in the day uh, before you get to dinner. And then at dinner time, you have a small dinner, and then you have a dessert at the end. You know, that's sort of something that you have to reward yourself. We're not, I mean, we don't want this to be a diet of deprivation. We want it to be, you know, you have all the eating opportunities you want, and uh, you just, you, you make smart decisions at every one. But you, you know, with, uh, with the book in front of you, you know exactly how to make those smart decisions. Well, that fits into our, our cultural mentality because I don't know one person in this country who wants to feel deprived. Do you? Well, and, and that's not a word that we like to know, have in our vocabulary. No, so totally. You say, and that's, okay, you start uh, off with a big breakfast, but what is yes. And I know it's big for, is different for, you know, a teenager or somebody in their 20s and 30s or an older person in their 50s and 60s, but just on the average, what would be a big breakfast? Well, I mean, even saying big, we're, we're looking at, you know, still you don't want to go over about 600 calories. Um, and so that's, that's uh, I think some people might think that's a challenge, but really you can go into every restaurant and find, you can find those meals that put you under 600 calories. You know, you can go at Starbucks, they've got a great, you know, egg, egg white, spinach, and feta wrap um, loaded with fiber. You can get that with a, with a cappuccino on the side, and you're still at about 400 calories. Um, so when I say big breakfast, I'm not talking massive breakfast. I'm talking in relation to the other meals you eat. You don't want to just, you know, have a, do something like have a little English muffin and then go about your day because you're going to be starving at lunchtime. Yeah, does it matter the kind of calories? Because you, you said, you know, like if you're having the eating eggs and you're eating uh, stuff that has protein as opposed to like some big 
muffin, which may have 350 calories, but still that's not going to be good in terms of your energy level and ability to think and work or whatever you do. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. You raise, you raise a, an excellent point, you know, and this is, this is backed by the research. Um, the studies show that people who eat eggs for breakfast consume fewer calories throughout the day, and that's because eggs are loaded with protein. Um, you know, somehow we've allowed the bagel to become the classic breakfast food. But all that basically is is, is these really fast-digesting carbohydrates. What you really want in breakfast is you want protein and fiber because those are the two nutrients that are going to keep you full throughout the day. Um, whereas if you just have nothing but carbohydrates, uh, they digest quickly, and um, they, just, they, they raise your blood sugar level, and your body responds by releasing insulin, which clears that blood sugar out as fast as it can, and then your blood sugar is low. And when your blood sugar is low, you lose your discipline the next time you're, you know, standing in front of the order window and you're trying to decide what you're, what you're going to have. You're just, you're, you're a zombie at that point and you're just ordering, you know, the most calories you can because your body is just craving them. Yeah, you're ready to stuff it in. We only have a couple minutes left. So where do we get Eat This, Not That, the, um, this new publication? So we can have it well, us when we go to eat at these restaurants. Yeah, exactly, um, and that's the idea. You know, you, uh, you, you check it out and uh, you figure out how to fit um, how to fit these foods into your lifestyle, or how to fit your lifestyle around uh, healthy eating. But it's, you can buy the book just about anywhere. It's at Amazon, it's at Barnes and Noble, um, or you can uh, check out our website. We've got a lot more information, which is www.eatthis.com. Great! Thanks so much for being on the show. Lots of good information. All right, thanks for having me on. I'll throw away all my bagels in the freezer. Clint Carter, (laughs) associate editor at Men's Health, and the new publication is Eat This, Not That. Uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. I hope you had a great morning, have a good week, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.